this week, it was an honour to speak with Annie Sloan, founder of the incredible and innovative Chalk Paint. Annie's journey is a fascinating one. As someone who's literally obsessed with creativity and the power of colour, I was really looking forward to hearing more about Annie's passion for art and how it helped her develop a revolutionary product that's loved globally. Annie's built a phenomenal business with incredibly strong core values. We discussed her relationship with her stockists, how she champions the high street and the importance of community within a brand. With a true passion for paint, colour and creativity, Annie is completely grounded and shares her wonderfully colourful expertise and experiences with us. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street from the kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and asked them to share theirs. With thanks to NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hello, Annie. What a pleasure it is to speak with you today. I had such a lovely time with you on IGTV when we had our little chat that I thought, okay, I need to steal her for a little bit longer and ask her to have you on my podcast. And you said yes. So thank you so, so much. Well, it's a great, great pleasure to be here. Obviously, obviously. As someone who just a Doors, interiors, I love colour. It is one thing to be speaking to the queen of colour and hear more about your incredible journey. I had hoped in this podcast I would start to say we used to be in lockdown and now we're coming out of it. But, Mm. you know, it feels like we're going to be stuck indoors for a little bit longer. Now, I'm just outside of Richmond at my desk. Where are you about? And where do you spend your time mostly during this lockdown period? Well, during lockdown, I'm mainly at home. My home is in Oxford. I've got a townhouse in the funky part of Oxford, okay. in the what I call the Nutting Hill area. It's um, <laughs> cool, I think. I live there with my husband and sometimes one of my sons. I have three sons, but they're all in their 30s and so they've mostly flown the nest. So I'm living there and I've got a studio space that was my garden room, but it's now turning into a studio. Right. And then I also work partly, I come to my warehouse, which we call the warehouse, but it's actually offices, factory and studios here as well. And that's in another part of Oxford, very, very near the BMW factory. Now, Annie, I wanted to go back. You had a very interesting childhood. Your father was Scottish and your mother was Fijian. Part Fijian, but from Fiji, yeah. That is quite an exotic heritage. Mm. You were born and spent your early years in Australia, growing up on a farm. Mm -hmm. Were those happy days for you and your family? Oh, extraordinary. Absolutely beautiful. My father was actually a journalist and he was a radio journalist. So my early years were listening to him on the radio because he occasionally read the news, which was so exciting. I loved it. Also, we had a small holding, which my mother was looking after. And we had cows and pigs, chickens, geese once, never again. We grew apricots and passion fruit and lemons and oranges. It was blissful. I was an only child. We lived in a sort of, I suppose they're called suburbs, but nice. But we lived a bit out, so I was on my own an awful lot, but that never bothered me. There were some other kids around that I could go and see if I wanted to, but I spent a lot of time on my own, which I think is a great great thing for you. You know, it gives you a bit of solidness. 
or something. I don't know. Do you feel that? You've got three sons, haven't you? Yeah. But you were an only child. And yeah. I sometimes think about my son being an only child. So many people do say that you tend to get to know yourself very well, and that's not a bad thing. Yeah, I think what happens is that you develop a, a core because you've got to entertain yourself, so you're not dependent on other people. Mm. I mean, there's good and bad with both ways. And actually, when you hear what I say later... My... Yes, we won't story steal. <laughs> no, you won't. But I will just tell you, you'll see a little bit about why that is interesting. But I did love being on my own and I still love being on my own. I'm very happy being on my own. And in Australia, in this farm, it was stuffed to the gills with artwork. Was that right? Yes. My father was, he was a journalist, but he was very well read. He read lots. He was very interested in art. And so he bought lots of things. He was always buying books. He was always, he talked a lot. He was very interested in all sorts of things. I think he was a fascinating man. Thank you. My tea's just arrived. Lovely. Oh, good. There you go. <laughs> I think ideas were very important. And I think that's mm-hmm. something that carries you on. And I think, you know, whoever you are and whatever you are, if the chips are down, if you've got some ideas to think about, that makes you happy. Absolutely. You came back from your Australian farm when you were about 10 years old. Is that right? Yes. You moved to a, another farm. A really proper farm. In Kent. Yes. Did your father then fill this farm with art? Because you ended up going to fine art school for seven years. Yeah. Is that a long time to go to? Yes. yes. I, I thought it was when researching you. I was like, seven years, my goodness. Yeah. Now, This must have shaped your entire life. Yeah, I went when I was 17 and my parents then went to live in Africa. So I was on my own now in London, South London. And one thing you did miss, I did have a brother. So he was born when I was 10. Right. So I do have a a full sibling. And that was when you came back to the UK, was it? He was born in England. So I was born in Australia. He was born in England. Okay. So, yes, we used to go to auctions all the time and buy art and had a fantastic time buying furniture. There'd always be a lot where there'd be unknown and he would say do you want those I'd go yeah I want that one yeah and they'd always go for you know a few quid or something yes he developed in me a great sort of sense of interest in objects and things and decorative art I suppose really yeah but the farm was very very hard he was a very romantic man he thought it was going to be wonderful he forgot you've got to be out there at four o'clock in the morning in the pouring rain and the cold so it less <laughs> romantic when it actually came to it yeah exactly so they went off to live in what's now called Zimbabwe it was called Rhodesia at that time I was on my own I went to art school here and I was there for five years in one art school. That's Croydon Art School. And I was mainly on my own and I drew a lot. I painted a lot. I kept myself incredibly busy. I think the fact that I had had a childhood on my own Mm. didn't worry me at all. There was a times when I was a little bit lonely. I don't know. I never thought of myself as lonely. Maybe sometimes. No, I not very much. I do remember a couple of times, but not really. And when I think about a 17-year-old mm. in London studying art, mm. I'm thinking, what could go wrong? I know, exactly. This nicely leads into studying all of that art. Mm. And so after your time at university training in fine art, you actually then had another career <laughs> as a singer in a girl band called The Moody's. Yes, yes. This was a successful band. Oh, it was. And you made the front pages of the Sunday Times. You yeah. were mixing with the likes of Pink Floyd, Mick Jagger, <laughs> Bowie. Tell me about this era. Well, first of all, from Croydon Art School, I then went to do two years at Reading University where I did a master's degree. So that's where I met a whole lot of other friends and we formed this band called the Moody's which was amazing and there were six girls and one guy we had various names one of them was Moody and the Menstruators but we dropped the menstruating bit <laughs> my goodness <laughs> well we were sort of pre-punk before punk I think yeah and we were very aware of what we were doing and completely unaware of what we were doing We had a good time, that's all I can tell you. Well, I can only imagine. (laughs) This was 1973, is this right? I think we've disbanded by then, so it'd be about 70 to 72, 73, yeah, something like that. Was it as good as I can imagine it was? Yeah, I think it was, yeah. (laughs) How epic. I mean, these things don't happen now, Annie. You just mean like... they do. Oh, not the wildness, come on. There's something about that whole era that was just... 
Well, it is true that that time, drugs and sex and rock and roll, basically, is what it was all about. Yeah. And it weren't the dangers. Yeah. I mean, drugs were much quieter and softer and nicer and wasn't so commercialised. And But on the other hand, nowadays, I've got two of my boys do music and they're more in charge of themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, music then was you had a manager who told you what to do and, you know, you didn't have much choice. So... Yeah, you know, there's always good and always bad. That's very much me. So after this time, this rather romantic time, I would say, (laughs) it was mid-70s and you decided to return to your love, your first love, which was art. And you started to take commissions to paint murals in these grand houses and you were writing books and the first of which is actually the incredibly successful and renowned book, The Complete Book of Decorative Paint Techniques, which is considered an absolute industry Bible. I can imagine you almost have had a few lives already by Mm. what is quite a young point in your journey in life, isn't it? Tell me about that period. And did you have memorable commissions? Was this something that you felt very confident in doing? I think youth is very good, isn't it? Because when you're young, you think you can do anything. Yeah, you go, oh, I can do that. It's no problem. I don't know. I did it and obviously I fell flat on my face sometimes. But I was always someone who studied a lot. I looked things up and I would work at things. And then I would abandon it and then just go in for it. (laughs) But sometimes it failed. Sometimes it was gloriously successful. So I had some great successes and some great failures. Tell me about those great successes. Give me an idea of what that was. So when we say these grand sort of houses and these Mm. commissions, give me a picture of what that was. Well, it could be somewhere like a great house in Eaton Square, a beautiful part of London. And I would get the whole house to do the room, the walls, the colours. It was incredible. It was just wonderful. I've not been scared of colour, so I was able to do things. I loved working with these often women. And there would be a great rapport. And and this is where I actually was very impressed because I'd been at art school where actually nobody talked much about beauty, not when I was at art school anyway. So people started talking to me about wonderful colours and they'd say, I want this colour and they'd show me. I mean, one woman did show me the colour, the inside of an envelope. And the envelope was this beautiful pink. Mm. She said, I love that colour. I want that colour on my wall. And I had to mix it. And another said... I want that sort of dirty cream colour. She said, you know, like mashed bananas. Wow. And I just thought, you are amazing because, as I said, I've been at art school all those years and no one had talked to me about the beauty of a the inside of an envelope or mm. a beauty of mashed bananas. <laughs> it's so good. So was this a, almost a, quite an early era of interior decorating? Mm. You were taking off and you had this sort of world, but what I can't believe is also you had three young children. Mm. Am I right in saying in your time it was actually not, a sort of done thing to have this career that was taking off as an entrepreneur potentially and having three young children because it was at this point that you wanted to try and move back home or have your children have your work which now seems quite a modern thing but it wasn't at the time was it no i mean i was quite involved in feminism you know and i read the female eunuch yeah we'd all talked a lot about feminism and what it meant to me and what it meant to be a feminist. And I'd sort of got sick of people saying, oh, come to this consciousness-raising group tonight. And I was thinking, sorry, my consciousness is raised enough. (laughs) (laughs) What we need to do now is get women out there in the market and doing stuff. Doing the doing. Doing the doing, exactly. So that was one of the impetuses for me. I can remember it very, very strongly. And someone actually did say, come to this meeting. Now, I said, I've done that. Mm. Done that. (laughs) I want to go and start doing something. Then I did all the the houses and stuff. And then actually painting houses and having children is quite difficult. I can only imagine. So that's when I thought, first of all, I'll start writing books about it because I've always wanted to write a book. So I thought I'll do a book about it. And I also thought this is amazing because there's all this around and nobody knows much about it. A lot of it at the time was the old guys who knew about marbling and wood graining and all this incredible Mm -hmm. stuff. A lot of them sort of, you know, old guys who'd been trained a long time ago. And I thought this is all going to go because nothing's written down or anything. So I got very, very interested in that. 
And someone asked me to write a book. So that was great. So book writing and having children is a bit easier because you can write after they've gone to bed. Was I right in thinking that you were about 40 years old when this was happening? When I started the business, I was over 40. And this is the thing, because when I look at what people did call, and I can't bear this sort of work-life balance, and can women have it all, and can you have children and work, and Mm. do we divide our worlds? And here you were basically saying, actually, I can't do all this interiors and stand on stepladders and paint while I have young children. So I'm going Mm. to now make this business work for me. I'm going to start writing books in this period of time. But you then noticed that you started to feel frustrated that the actual sorts of paints that you wanted to work with had not actually been created yet. You'd already started mixing your own paints, which if anyone even asked me, I wouldn't even know what you even would do. But I know you were mm. using eggs or you use glue, you use milk. Mm. Tell me about this. Was this something that when the kids went to bed, you went, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to crack open some eggs and milk and mix some paint. <laughs> no, it didn't come out of nowhere. As I said, I've always been somebody who did research. So I'd take myself off to the British Library and all sorts of places to search what did people paint with. I don't know why, but I was fascinated with the idea that people would paint. I don't know, they might be the first settlers in America. Mm-hmm. Well, they couldn't go down and buy Dulux. <laughs> what did they do? The Swedish painters, farmers, what did they use? So I started to look at all that. and I was really interested in what is the urge that people have to paint? Because I'd been immersed in the sort of art schooly thing of the whole very in-your-head stuff, intellectual. And I thought, well, no, but there's another drive that people just want to make their pieces look fabulous. I studied a lot, I read a lot and found out. So if you were a Swedish farmer, what do you have excess of? Eggs. Egg yolk is a paint. Mm -hmm. You mix egg yolk with pigment and some water and various other things if you want to. That's basically what it is. You have uh, milk. You have excess at some time, so you can make that into a paint. You can actually take yoghurt itself, just plain yoghurt, add pigment to it, And you've got to paint. I've used it all. I've done it all. Now, that is a very, very early paint. And where do you get pigment? Well, if you go out, I mean, you go to Oxford, where I am, there was um, a colour that when I was a child was called Oxford ochre, Oxford ochre. Well, it came from here. It was the earth. In Sweden, there's all these sort of wonderful reds because the earth is red. You've got uh, burnt umber and burnt sienna, sienna, all Italian names. They're all earth pigment. So that's where you start. And then you can go on and find all sorts of other things. You find semi-precious stones and all sorts of things. That's a whole story. Anyway, so I was fascinated by all this. Still am. I just find it fascinating. (laughs) I'm going to talk about how you then turned this fascination that you had. But it reminds me of when I've spoken to entrepreneurs and Anya Hindmarsh, you know, she used to cut out handbags, you know, out of cardboard and paper. And other people I've spoken to literally will build something and put blue tack and tape and they're building their prototype. They almost Mm. couldn't get out of not actually physically doing it. They had to get it out of their heads and make it. And it it feels Mm. like you were doing the same. You were almost Mm. thinking of colour and you just sort of needed to be able to create it. And it's an amazing thing, actually, for anyone listening to not feel too proud to just go and try and fabricate that idea that's in your head. Just get it out there and start doing. Would you agree? Because this is really where it all started for you, wasn't it? Yes, it is. And I think, actually, it comes from wanting to understand yourself. I wanted to know why Why did I want to paint? It just seems a ridiculous thing to want to do, to find these colours and put them together. And is that something that other people find? Mm. People love to paint. Mm. I don't quite know why, but that doesn't matter. It's a a sort of a group thing, um, which is interesting. I'll talk about that later if we get a chance, because at this time, people want to find that they can decorate, make things look nice. 
you know, if we look back already to your childhood and your father and the collection of art and being in these auctions mm. and almost mm. giving life again to these mm. products that, you know, your dad would buy. And then you think about your seven years of studying and mm. at the age of 14, some might say that it's later than your 20s and 30s, mm. you found your passion in life and you started building a business from it. So many people that I speak to, it's about finding that courage to do that. And I know you wrote books before and things like that. Mm. If there is anyone listening who's not living their life, living it through their passions, you know, I, I do want to encourage everyone to try and think about that. Mm. Would you agree that you've had a fortunate life being able to build a business through your passion? Definitely. But I think I've always was doing it and I was always building it. Okay, yes. And I did start with something which was in my mid-twenties. I sort of decided, what am I going to do? You know, after my band broke up, I left the band and I thought, well, I can't leave this band, which was actually quite good and we got a lot of chances and things were happening. I can't do that and not know where I'm going. Mm -hmm. So I did sort of make plans about, you know, what was the end goal? Why am I not doing that? And why am I doing this other thing? So I did to sort of make plans. Can you remember back to what you plotted? Did you have a sort of, you know, not obviously the coordinates, but did you have a sort of goal in mind? A sort of goal, yes. I wanted to paint. That was the idea that I wanted to understand and know about paint and be a painter and have a family, but also develop this whole thing about what is paint and why I'm doing it and to make a business out of it. But I also wanted to have the end goal of painting. I just wanted to, yeah, paint. In the last series, I gave you the chance to win a one-to-one -one mentoring session with me, and I am thrilled that I'm doing the same this time. Plus, there'll be 10 opportunities to win specially tailored business mentoring sessions from the NatWest Entrepreneurship Managers. This team have coached tens of thousands of startups and business owners across the country so they know their stuff. To be in with a chance to win, all you need to do is sign up to the NatWest Business Builder using our code. The Business Builder is a completely free e-learning site full of information and advice covering everything from well-being to finance. Head to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker for all the details. Now, as you know, each week we run a competition with NatWest, who give away their ad break to small businesses and independents. They truly believe in the power of small and want to give you the opportunity to showcase your business to tens of thousands of listeners. So without further ado, let me hand over to this week's NatWest Independent Ad Break winner. Hi, I'm Nicola and I'm a daydreaming mum of two who runs Booms and June Studio, a new apparel brand and online shop with a mission to sprinkle some extra magic into family occasions throughout the year. I design seasonal collections of organic t-shirts and sweatshirts for all the family. So if you like a bit of twinning, I think you're going to love us. Booms and June is totally inspired by my own two little loves. After looking for great quality gender neutral clothes for occasions like Halloween, Easter and Christmas, but not finding what I wanted, I did what many entrepreneurs do and decided to fill the gap myself. I'm a Covidpreneur, a word I've totally made up. I launched Booms and June in the depths of the coronavirus lockdown back in June with my first ever summer collection that was inspired by British summer traditions. And of course, for 2020, it had a heavy staycay vibe. I adore traditions. I love how different families have their own slightly different take on traditions. And I love how honouring traditions creates the bedrock of our memories. So if you'd love to make some magical memories with your family, please give Booms and June a follow on Instagram at Booms and June and visit our website. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be heard by tens of thousands of people, we've created more information on what we're looking for at our website, holly.co. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. So if we go back to your brilliant and totally inspired idea for chalk paint, yes. you couldn't find the paint type mm. or the colours 
you wanted to use in your work. And there was nothing like that existed. As you said, you were making your own paints. What were those first steps when creating that product and finding a factory to help you in those early days? And can you remind me what brands were around at that time? The big normal paint around was Dulux. That was the thing. There was art paints, of course, and there were some various milk paints around. Yep. Some of the paints were American paints that would come that I would get hold of those. There was egg tempera. There was a paint which I used to use quite a lot, which was called Placa Lacquer or Placa Lacquer. I never knew what. Placa Lacquer, <laughs> what a name. So um, there were other things around, but there was nothing quite like it. Um, milk paint was the nearest to it. And also they were not made in the what I wanted because what I wanted them to be like art colours because art colours, when you buy red, it is red in there. That is the red pigment. Whereas if you buy a paint by another company, the red will have blacks in it and it won't be pure. So when you add white to it, it's red with a little bit of black in it. Mm. So it's not going to be a pure pink. So I wanted my paints to be pure pigments and I wanted them to be a simple paint and some of the simple paints that I knew about. I did start with the idea of a milk paint that disappeared quite quickly yeah, so that was what happened. And I was happened to be, I was teaching about how to paint and stuff. And I happened to be in Utrecht. And there was uh, a guy there who said, oh, I know a paint factory. He said, it's a family firm. Let's go and see it. And they were fantastic. They, it was a small enough company to be able to sort of take me and work with me. Yeah, take you on with not huge quantities that you would need. Exactly. And they were interested as well because the wife had made her own range of colours. So they were interested in making interesting colours. So it was very good. It was all really good. Was also the idea behind the paint, because I know that you were passionate about being able to paint something in the morning, wax it and put it back <laughs> in position in the afternoon. You know, yes. You, you wanted things that people could use on wood, metal, plastic, yes. cement. You wanted to sort of have a friendly paint. Yeah, absolutely. One of the most amazing things now, looking back, is that I thought the big thing it had to be is water-based. Now, that seems like, well, of course it would be water-based. But then I can remember meeting a man who said to me, by the year 2000, there'll be no more oil-based paint. And I thought, really? Gosh, Absolutely right. Yes. You know, oil-based paint is just a rarity now. But then it was still something which was a little bit special. It had to be quick because I did have three young children. I had to get it done quickly. And you knew your customer then, right? Yeah. That was the perfect thing. It was women who were looking to decorate. Yeah. Needing speed. Do you know, I never thought like that. I didn't think who is my customer. I just thought this is what I want. I expect other people will as well. And has that always been your thing? Because it's interesting, again, so many people, we can look for gaps in the market, can't we? And some of the entrepreneurs and founders that I found have lasted a lifetime, have been those that just built things that they love. And they knew yeah. that the customers would then follow rather than the other way round. I've always said, if you try to make money, if you build something on making money, it will fail dismally. I can remember people saying, oh, I'm going to write a blog and make lots of money. I'm like, no, you won't. You've got to have a passion. You've got to have something you love. You've got to be mm. driven. You can't say, I'm going to make money out of it. It won't. It just won't work. And that's what's happened. I've got lots of people who've tried to copy me. And they go, OK, I'll do this, this and this, and that will make me loads of money. But there's no passion. There's no interest. There's no draw. I don't know. It's all baloney, isn't it? Well, it's all baloney because <laughs> it's what I like to think is the secret sauce. It's the magic. It's the invisible energy yeah. that you can only put into your idea. And it only comes from you because you were the one that invented it. Yes. Tell me about this time because you launched with 12 Colours, didn't you? Mm -hmm. In 1990, during a recession, mm. then you were followed by another banking crisis in 2010. Mm. And... Actually, times are uncertain at the moment and a lot of businesses are starting up and they're worried about this. And mm. I've been very open that, you know, my business, Not in the High Street, was born in a recession. Holly & Co is now going through a recession. Tell me about this experience. For those who are thinking about starting a business, when we 
could feel a bit uncertain. I've done the troughs and the highs and the lowest time ever. Well, the banking crisis was awful, but so was 9-11. I can remember that no one came to my shop for about a week. Everyone was in shock. And we're in England. You know, it didn't just be in America. Mm. Everybody was in shock. Mm. But in fact, I think recession is a fantastic time for us because people want to make themselves feel Mm cosy. Painting is amazing therapy. It's also an economical thing because you repaint your kitchen rather than buy a new one. You maybe paint the spare room so you can have people to stay, Airbnb, all of these things. People are buying paint, economic reasons, but they also do it because it makes them feel good. Do you think one of the ways of looking at your business is to actually ask yourself, so if there is going to be a crisis or a recession, how is my business useful? How is it going to be consumed? You always need to think of relevance, don't you? And I mean, you have paint, which is multifaceted and it it can move with the times. One thing you have not talked about, which I'm going to draw your attention to, Mm. because it's incredibly important, is that right from the beginning, I did not sell to the big stores. It was my next question, actually. Ah. We are getting on to the independence, but you're so right because yeah. you decided that you were going to work with the stockists who love you, who were able to bring life to your business, were fellow painters, fellow uh, believers. Tell me about that decision. So I had my shop and then people would come in and say, I love this shop. I love one. And at that time, franchises were talked about a lot. So people came in and say, oh, are you doing franchises? I'd love this. So I thought, oh, franchise, that's an interesting thought. I looked into it and thought, Anybody that wants to do a franchise is not going to be a creative person. Yes, you're right. Yes. It's obvious, isn't it? And I'd already sort of got an inclination of that because someone would come in and I'd go, that person who, lovely person, but she's not going to have the same shop as me because she's a different type of person. Mm. You know, she would show me photographs of her shop and say, well, can I turn my shop into something like yours? But there'd be things in that shop that I'd think her personality is going to be different. So that should stay there. That's good. If she's doing hers in Leicester and someone else is doing theirs in Manchester, they all should be unique and special. And also at that same time, maybe a bit earlier, I'd been to America. I was in New York teaching painting and I had my little boys and I thought, I'm going to get them some Oshkosh. Oh, I loved it. The dungarees. Yes. My goodness. That was the big thing for kids at that time. So I thought, I'm going to get some stuff for boys and I'm also going to get Gap and I'm going to bring them stuff that only you can get in America and it'll be so cool. Of course, you go there and it's exactly what they had in Oxford. <laughs> no. Yeah. I was so disappointed. I thought I'd get American stuff. And, of course, also the same things. You go to France and you think, oh, I'll go to France and I'll get cute T-shirts with have French things written on them. Mm -hmm. They don't. Everything is universal. And I thought that was just awful. Mm. And so I just thought I'm not going to do that. I think what we need is unique. And I hated the idea that I would go to Exeter and I would go to Tunbridge Wells and the same shops would be there and I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Am I in Exeter or am I in Tunbridge Wells? I have no idea. It's quite amazing that you thought like that because you must have had offers, did you, from the big boys? Yes, a little bit. They never interested me at all because... Having gone down that a little bit, I realised what happens. They take all your ideas, they give you a tiny bit of profit and everything disappears. And I could see it again and again. I mean, the big person that, oh gosh, who's the writer, the food writer, famous food writer, can't remember. She lost her name, she sold it. So I thought that could happen to me. I don't want to lose my name. It'd all be different in the shop. Your name's there, you've lost it. So I just thought, no. I will not do that. And it was all about the independent retailers. It was all about basically allowing, you know, and I, I do think this is incredible and, and, and one for maybe those listening to think about, you know, how do you empower people to be your champions mm. of your brand, mm. but not necessarily constrain them? Because mm. I remember when we were speaking on the IGTV, you were talking about someone in America and he was a rocker, I think you were saying. And yeah, so, England, actually. In England, sorry. And he'd done something different. And so that experience 
fits the local community. They then know them and you're happy with that. Do you ever get worried about your brand guidelines or do you feel it's just actually about loving paint? I think it's about loving a paint and I think it's about loving different sorts of people so that you can have the guy that is a rocker and has skulls and makes it all really cool um, or the woman who loves pink and pales, pale colours and flowers and pretty and fairies and butterflies, they're both equally as good. You might prefer one to the other, but that doesn't mean one's wrong and one's right. They are just all good, but it all connected to two things. One is paint and the other thing is colour. And, you know, you can express yourself. I mean, I believe so much in diversity and being who you are and not pretending you're somebody else. All of those things are so, so important. No, well, no, I find it really interesting because right now, as you know, Annie, we've got a bit of a problem on the high street. We have got small businesses struggling, even though during COVID we have definitely reconnected, haven't we, with our locals and our local community. And I pray, and I know you and I are both on exactly the same page here, that we are heading into a new era where we're thinking about where we're consuming. Tell me if you have any advice out there from all these years working with independents mm. and all the highs and lows you must have watched your mm. stockists going through yes. as well. What have been those common denominators, those things that have held true and helped the strongest survive? Yes, it is sad that there are some people who will fail at this. They will fall by the wayside. It's already happened to me and it's incredibly sad. I mean, sometimes it's just a victim of a landlord who is incredibly greedy. So mm -hmm. someone at the moment, their landlord has been incredibly greedy and then putting the price up, putting their rent up, which is absurd. So what do you do? I'm trying to support them by saying your local community is really, really good. Because I know during lockdown, I connected to shops in my local community. And those local community shops have to really work at me because I can forget to go and see them. Yeah. So I've got a really great, two really great, one's a green grocer. Pickle and Lime. And another one is Hamblin Bread. They're absolutely fantastic. What so, great names. Yes, I know. <laughs> so their Instagrams are fantastic. Mm -hmm. They are working at it all the time, taking great photographs, constantly reminding me that they're there. And that is so good because it's easy to forget. Because you're in competition with Waitrose yeah. or whatever. You're right. Who advertise everywhere. They've got vans everywhere. It's all advertising, Tesco's, everybody, all the big uh, stores. So as a small independent or an independent, you have to work very, very hard. So my shops who sell paint, they have to be selling on Instagram. They have to be out there showing who they are and where they are. They have to shout an awful lot. So nowadays running a shop is incredibly hard. Mm. Got to work, work, work. Do you think it's retail theatre? as well because Absolutely. I'm assuming with your paints you know bringing things to life the new techniques do you support them with that not like a franchise but do you help your stockists understand yeah the new ways of doing things. Oh, yes. I just did a live to my UK stockists. And I'm going to do another live to my Australian stockists. And I'll do one to Canadians. So I'm mentoring them all the time about things like Instagram lives. That's my big thing at the moment because yep. I think that's so important. I buy on Instagram. I buy lots yep. of things on Instagram. From candlesticks to clothes to candles, you know, people are... So you've got to keep buying. You've got to keep out there and telling people you're there. And I like to mentor. So, yeah, I'm doing that all the time. All year, together with our friends at Three, we're working to make business dreams come true. Share your dreams on social using the hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer and who knows what will happen. Three understands it's been a tough time for businesses, so they're offering their business price promise. A promise that if you find a better deal, they'll beat it. Not only that, I love that they offer up to £500 of benefits from specialist partners to help your business thrive. Head to 3.co.uk forward slash terms for terms and conditions. Now, here's a short story about those that dreamed big and flew. 
Born in Wisconsin in 1858, Harry Selfridge was one of three boys. His father joined the army to fight in the Civil War and sadly his brothers died at a young age. Alone with his mother, Selfridge looked at ways in which he could contribute to the family income, first by delivering newspapers and then by working in a store. With the money he earned, he showed an early entrepreneurial streak and started a monthly boys' magazine, earning income from advertising. And in 1876, he was employed as a stock boy in one of the most prestigious stores in the city and over 25 years slowly worked his way up to become a junior partner. Harry married into a good family and his personal wealth grew considerably. Whilst in London on holiday, he noticed that although it was a great cultural and commercial hub, it could not compete with the department stores of Chicago or Paris. Harry spotted a gap in the market and led by the bold statement, excite the mind and the hand will reach for the pocket, Selfridge set about creating his dream, the most beautiful department store in London with incredible window displays. These were then lit at night to draw in the crowds. He championed experiences in his store, music and dancing. Harry believed passionately that the business of shopping wasn't just about what customers bought. It was about how much enjoyment they got in choosing it. This brought about a retail revolution. Selfridge transformed the shopping experience, revolutionised the sale of makeup and beauty by bringing them to the front of the store and coined the phrase, the customer is always right. He was many years ahead of his time and Harry's dream to build the best department store in the world, his legacy was truly realised. Don't forget to share your own business dreams on social using the hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer and to find out more about their business plans, search 3 Means Business. Now, back to Conversations of Inspiration. It sounds like you've not forgotten this sort of basic human connection. Mm. You're caring about your stockists. Mm. You've built up valuable relationships. And these are the things that stand us through the hard times, isn't it? It it really is. And you also have some other core values that I love, community, the environment. Mm. And I know that your family is right at the heart of your business, with your Mm. husband, your son, your daughter-in-law, all involved in the Mm -hmm. day-to-day. And you place such emphasis on your employees and how Mm. they feel about your brand. You run yoga classes. I mean, I need to pull my socks up here. This is a, You have entire company lunches and yes. it's quite wonderful. So you, you're not only building this community with your stockers, you know, you're really building the community internally. And mm. from an environmental perspective, you were quite early on, recycle, reuse, mm. reimagine, you know, mm. these core values. Mm. Do you think today it's very important to have you know, these missions outside of what you sell? Because it seems like you had this right from the start. Yeah. I mean, I didn't do it deliberately, but I think, to me, you've got to have a holistic life. I don't want to be going to work and then coming home and then doing something completely different. I think what I believe in myself has got to be the thing that I believe in for my business. I don't like going to supermarkets. So, you know, that means if I'm not going to go to supermarkets, where am I going to shop? How can I do it economically well? You know, you can do all sorts of things. And I like it all to work together so that, you know, my office life is as nice as it can be, you know. So we do do yoga and we do, we did French classes. We've done life drawing classes. Not at the moment because of COVID, but (laughs) just in case anyone thinks I am. But you almost make it one. You know, I talk about having this one life, Mm. you know, it's not work and home. It's a one life. So it's trying to bring that together. Mm. Tell me more about this, because in 2017, you worked with Oxfam, developing a paint for them. And I know you've committed to raising 250,000 to reduce poverty. Mm. It's it's a wonderful thing. And I'm sure it's an amazing experience. How did you ever even come up for the colour for Oxfam? Well, you go to Ethiopia, which is where they asked me to go to. Well, I was given the choice of three. I chose Ethiopia. 
And you go there and you just keep looking out. I actually went there with an idea of that I would make a particular colour. I came away making a completely different colour. It was an amazing experience. I was working there. They were working there and they introduced me to these women who were planting onions to grow onion seeds and they sold the onion seeds. And we went to this field. They're white, you know, the allium seed. You can have purple ones, but you can also have white ones. And the plant is green and the flower is white, these round balls. So from a distance, you have this very beautiful green. And so that's what I made, because to me, that did symbolise what it was, the colour that was the beauty that was coming out of the, the money that Oxfam was putting into Ethiopia. And then we called it Lemlem. And lemlem means fertility in the language of Ethiopia, which was fantastic. And I mean, that was a great privilege, an incredible place to go to. Those women were incredible. It was fantastic. So that was something because Oxfam comes from Oxford as well. You know, did you know that? So we've got paint, we've got minis and we've got Oxfam. I mean, this is the place to go. When you speak, you know, I could just listen to it forever. You you have a way of describing colour and it's so poetic. Oh. Well, obviously you're a highly creative person and you're really helping other people with techniques, being more colourful, being more creative. And that's something that you've done for a really long time. You give permission for people to sort of follow in their independent individual styles and Mm. big question here okay ready Mm. tell me what you think (laughs) being creative is oh lord that is i know i'm gonna help you out with the second part (laughs) do you think that we are all creative Yes, I do. Very different ways, though. So my husband and I are complete opposites, but he is creative in a completely different way to me. He just thinks in a different way. I think he might come from another planet. I'm not sure. Oh, my gosh. Is it the same planet as Frank comes from? Because probably. Is it? Oh, my goodness. What a coincidence. Oh, that's so unfair. It Luckily is, isn't it? Me. No, me too. I only got married a week ago, so I really oh. shouldn't be saying this, but there oh. we are. Wow, that's so... Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you fantastic. very much. Happily married, obviously saying something like this on a podcast, but, you know, there you go. That's fantastic. You were saying, we digress. So David is a creative person, but in a very different different way. And I think that you have to think broadly about creativity. He can't draw, he can't paint, he hates painting, he loves music, but he doesn't play an instrument. But people have to be creative in that they think outside the box. Mm -hmm. That's what it's about, isn't it? And Mm. thinking about, let's have two and two together. Oh, it adds to 22. You know, I mean... I have never heard that. (laughs) That is just the best. It is right. Exactly right. (laughs) So you think that we're all creative in different ways. And do you Mm. think that when you've gone through your career and you must have met many creative women, many people building businesses, what's some of the the lessons that you've sort of learnt as you've gone on? Because you're still full pelt in your business. Mm. When you now look back at your 40s when you started Mm. what are some of the things that you feel like you want to say to sort of budding female entrepreneurs those who are starting ah yeah well just get out there and do it I mean don't worry too much you really just have to think of the future think of the main chance and think of your goal You know, things do get a bit tricky sometimes. They obviously do. All sorts of things happen that you think, oh, God, and you feel a drag down. But just think of your goal. You've got to have a sort of a goal. The goal might change, but have a goal and just keep on. So when things piss me off and I get really upset or I get annoyed or anything happens, you know, I will shout and scream for an hour or two, even a day. But then I get back to what it is I want to do and then that all goes and it's fine. Do you think it's been quite a saviour for you to have that goal, like a life raft during bad times? Um, Yes and no. Yes, it is. It's really, really, really important to have that. But I think the thing that really, and I talked about it right at the beginning, is having ideas which are not just about money. I think you must have some things which are not, you don't live your life so that you're going to be rich. That's not, that is not going to make you happy. It's got Mm. to be about things which are, you know, I don't know, art and music, 
all those nice things. Art and music, starting a girl band, maybe? Starting a girl band, definitely, with one boy. (laughs) I just absolutely have relished this conversation. And when we talk about sort of your life raft and your sort of things that get you through the bad times, if this has been a journey, your roller coaster would be this sort of business that you have built, it would be very colourful roller coaster, wouldn't it? You know, each cart would be painted in a beautiful colour. <laughs> Tell me about when you're flying high on that roller coaster with your hair in the wind, uh-huh. you know, singing at the top of your lungs. What's been one of the great moments for you? Oh, Lord. Actually, one of them was great. It was Oxfam. That was amazing. That was really, really fantastic. What a privilege. Yeah, real privilege. Yeah. And working with Charleston has been amazing. Charleston Farmhouse. You know, I'm doing this tour around Charleston and I never ever thought that such a lovely thing would happen. Doing my books has been amazing, having my business, having the people I work with. I've got an amazing team of people. I can't believe how lovely they are and having something that makes me wake up in the morning get up and want to go out and do stuff. And on the flip side when the cart is sort of going down south what do you feel has been a low point? Um I'm not going to answer that, you know, because they are things that sometimes feel incredibly important. You just get past them. I don't like to look on the things that are that go a bit crap. Things happen. There's always some crap that happens. I don't want to get involved with them. I mean, I can rant and rave, but no. It will go. It will go, you know. Everything changes. Nothing stays the same. That was something I, I learned very early on. Nothing stays the same. There's crap now, but it won't be. It'll be all right. It'll get better. Hold on tight <laughs> and better times will follow. Yeah, yeah. You are a wonderful person and I have just so enjoyed speaking to you. And I just can only imagine your life and the stories. Maybe one of your books should be all the stories that you're keeping You're keeping very much quiet about, but I can imagine you've got a few stories, hey? Maybe I have, maybe. I'm not going to say anything. Stum, keeping stum. Stum, because that's a bestseller right there. So we'll just keep stum. You've heard it all here first and he's going to create such a bestseller here. But for now, she's going to have another bestseller, which is her letter to self. Thank you, Annie, for writing this to us. And it's such a privilege to speak to you. I know this community will go nuts when I announce that you are a guest on this podcast. Well, you've been delightful and your lovely questions have been fantastic. It's made it very nice indeed. Thank you very, very much. (laughs) Over to you. Okay, so I'm going to read my letter to me. Dear Annie, the thing is that my younger self would not listen to my older self. So there's absolutely no point in talking to my younger self. Of course, I can say all the things like believe in yourself, etc, etc, etc. But it would have meant nothing to me. My father once laughed at me in an affectionate way, of course, when as a stroppy teenager, I shouted at him, let me make my own mistakes, after he tries to advise and help me. I still stand by that. I made the best decisions I could at the time. Did I make some bad decisions? Of course, everybody does. And I'll continue to make bad decisions. (laughs) But I do try to make them my decisions and I stand by them. And I try to keep hearing and remembering the end game. And I've made a few bloody good decisions along the way. That's me. Thank you very, (laughs) very much. Because you're right. When we think back to our younger selves, would we really have paid attention? And I think about your spirit and I definitely know that she wouldn't have. And I can still feel your spirit now. You know, your energy (laughs) is infectious and uh, it's just been a joy. Thank you so, so much for your time. And it's just been a wonderful privilege for me to speak to somebody so beautifully creative and colourful. You're very kind. Thank you. I'm going to float away. I'm so wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Bless you. Thank you. Before you go, don't forget that to be in with a chance to win a 90-minute mentoring session with me, all you need to do is sign up to NatWest's Business Builder. It's packed full of videos and advice to help you build your business and give you the tools you need. To find out more, head to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker. 
And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. Thank you.